Okay, Mary, so we are about to embark on a journey that involves two young people trading places. And I wanted to get us going on that long trek by having you rank definitive stories where people do that. How does that sound to you? I'm excited. Let's do it. Now, we could have gone all the way back to Prince and the Pauper, the origin of the genre, Mark Twain, 1881. I am not going to do that. I am going to give you the following choices. I would like you to rank The Parent Trap, It Takes Two, Freaky Friday, and inexplicably, the TLC Home Decorating Program Trading Spaces. Oh, wow. Wow, wow, wow. That's really, oh my God, that's hard. Okay. (laughs) I know. First of all, a moment of silence for Frank, my favorite decorator from Trading Spaces, who I just learned recently passed away, RIP Frank. Trading Spaces, the show, I'm going to hold on for a second. All right, so let me think. So it was Parent Trap, Freaky Friday, It Takes Two, Trading Spaces. Yes. Um, so I'm going to give number four to, this is hard. Number four goes to Freaky Friday, but just know that like it's still in my heart, still love it. Jamie Lee Curtis, like iconic looks in those movies, beautiful. Trading Space is the home show goes number three because it really mm. is episode specific and designer specific for me. If we're talking Hildy, it's a no. <laughs> if we're talking Doug, it's a no. If we're talking Frank, it's an absolute yes. Um, Genevieve, sure. Then I'm going It Takes Two with the Olsen Twins. It is iconic. We've revisited it on the Patreon. I have strong feelings about that movie. Have to go with Parent Trap, though, as number one. With And let me be specific, Lindsay Lohan edition. Wonderful question. My last follow-up was 1961 versus 1988, but you've answered that. I mean, with respect to Haley Mills, yes. who I think, like, <laughs> as playing her own twin, really. And, I mean, she was contending, you know, she was the person to originate, like, the British accent of it all. You know, I mean, a pathbreaker. But Lindsay Absolutely. Lohan, it's like... In the same way that that video of her dancing on the bar in in the beach in Greece that she owns, like in the way that that can never be replicated, so too her iconic performance in The Parent Trap, Gavel. This is so freaky. They're both unique in the same way. That's my mom. That's my dad. And you and I are like, like sisters. Hallie, we're like twins. I think we should switch places. I'll go back to London as you, and you go back to California as me. If we switch, they'll have to unstitch us. And when they do, they'll have to meet again face to face. Honey, you never looked better. Welcome, everyone, to American <laughs> Girls. This is the podcast where we're reliving the American Girls series, book by book. I'm Mary. I'm still Allison, and that expression is going to hold even more weight once we get through this book series together. What does that mean? So we are starting the Marie Grace and Cecile books, and this is something we've never done before. This is like the ultimate flip-flop. We're going to be going between characters as we get through the six-book arc. I'm really not prepared for it. Are you going to trade spaces with me? No. Well, maybe. Gosh. Trade identities? (laughs) Trade personas? (laughs) We trade off episodes? No. I mean... This book kind of sent me reeling because we're just getting to know Marie Grace and then we're going to switch completely to Cecile. Yeah. I mean, this is a big time first. I'm really excited to see how this all plays out and how it works because like you're saying, we've not read this in American Girl. And I was trying to think, I don't think I've read a lot of books that have done that either. Like I just haven't really fallen into um, a trope of switching perspectives, I guess. So... That'll be interesting. No, I think novels, I mean, some novels do it kind of chapter by chapter, but there's interesting questions like how they're going to handle the same events from different points of view. I guess a big question I have, and I know we're going to talk a little bit about Gilded Age, but a big question I have is 
How prepared were you for reading an epidemic book now in January, February, 2022? (laughs) Like, was Uh, this the top of your list, the bottom of your list? It's hard. I mean, something that I think about when I think about like therapeutic reading or other things is that, you know, are some people are genuinely comforted by reading more about the situation they're in. So I know some people who like reading the news during COVID, reading about COVID and what their numbers are at. I am not that person. I'm like deeply in an escape mode lifestyle right now. I'm deep in like a cozy British mystery place. I've decided for no reason at all to start rereading we're actually reading for the first time for me all of Agatha Christie's books. I've never read them before. Oh, nice. I've seen all of her adaptations and I have very strong feelings about the actors playing them, playing those parts. But like, I don't want anything. I don't want to be near this. I don't want to be reminded of it. <laughs> Saying that I did teach a class in the fall about public health epidemics and we did do a bunch of epidemic, like literally American history through epidemics. So I don't know why I did that to myself, but yeah, I, I don't know that this is going to be therapeutic for me. We'll see how this goes. Like, how are you feeling about this? So I decided to do some kind of quick research to get myself situated in 1853, which is where we're headed with these books. And there was some controversy because that is pretty close to Kirsten on the one end and then close to Addie on the other end. So it's not like it's covering a totally new time period. What shocked me right out the gate was this is literally the deadliest year of the yellow fever epidemic in New Orleans. So we are going right for it. Yeah, this is not a good time to be in New Orleans. Like the minute I saw the year, I was like, ah, like it's scary. I mean, we're going to talk about some other like not scary things first before we dive in, but yeah, I mean, oh my God, what a time to be alive, even vicariously through American Girl. Like, I'm scared. I'm excited. I mean, uh, I don't know, a lot of feelings. I think it's an interesting choice to give the children who would have come of age in Hurricane Katrina, New Orleans, this. I don't know that this is what they wanted or, or needed, or needed, but it's what they received. And you're right. I mean, it's kind of like when Brad Pitt went there and was like, I'm going to play architect and design housing for people post-Katrina. Like, I don't know if that's what people in New Orleans wanted or needed either, but also it's no. what they received. Um, so yeah, I'm I'm interested to get into it. I guess before we do dive into the book, we did want to just catch up on some pop culture things we're taking in. Like, where are you at? What are you watching? What are you excited about? Wow. So the answers to each of those are different, but we're going to talk about Julian Fellow's Gilded Age, because we used to watch Downton Abbey on a projector. I don't want to say illegally. So we had liberated files from the World Wide Web early when Downton Abbey would air in Britain, and we would watch them together on a flash drive. The level of excitement that I felt for HBO's Gilded Age was through the roof. Like, absolutely through the roof. The disappointment that I felt just as intense. Just as intense. Wow. All right. Yeah. So I know some of this already, but what is the nature of your disappointment? <laughs> I I think, and I have said this, you know, to you and to others, I think the sanitized vision of it, everything looks so clean. Everything feels like a set to me. I think part of the thing about Gilded Age is it's all about tension and friction. It's all about people trying to like break through different barriers. I don't want to say the show is boring because I think that's inaccurate. I don't think that that's true. What really kind of took me aback is there was no drama, Mm. right? Like you're in a house that's owned by kind of nouveau rich people. They're having all of this tension. Even the lead character who has recently been orphaned. I didn't feel anything for her. I think part of the reason why succession works for me is the people within that world are totally absurd and yet absolutely cannot take a joke. Yes. And when they cannot take a joke, like they are willing to tank the stock market to be right. I don't feel any of that with any of these people. I think that's fair. And I just have to reflect fondly on the first time. One of the first times (laughs) we ever watched it legally on TV after all of this illegal watching together was in Philadelphia when we were on a research trip. And I'll never forget, we were staying in this like really sketchy 
hotel and I thought we were going to be killed. And you met a man. We met a man in the lobby who randomly told us he was from Rhode Island. And you were like, we're not going to be killed because he's from Rhode Island. And like, I think about that all the time. Anyway, also, Matthew was killed in a scene that was followed by a commercial for a car that literally was shot for shot, like a remake of the scene in which we just seen him die. And like, I'm not over that still, however many years ago that was. But I think it's like, this is a soap opera. When you're making Mm. something like this, you have to commit that this is a soap opera. And if you're making a soap opera, yes, the sets need to be beautiful and whatever else. But as you're saying, you need to have the drama. If you don't bring drama, we don't have anything. And also, as you're saying, we need to have a a self-awareness that this is a camp world. So in other words, like not only are we living in the Gilded Age, but you need someone like Maggie Smith's character in Downton Abbey who's like basically winking at the audience the whole time. Yes. Like even as she's saying lines like, what's a weekend? Like she knows like that this is ridiculous, but she's so committed to the part, which I also think is what's happening in Secession too. Like they're, as you're saying, like so deeply committed to what they're doing, but because they're in so deep, it's like they take it beyond reality and that becomes camp. And that's what I think is missing where it's like, I'm sorry, are you guys having any fun? Like the people doing this, Christine Baranski is, I love her with a passion. We'll watch her in anything. I'm sorry, but her role in Mamma Mia, why she was not awarded an Academy Award (laughs) for her beach performance of Does Your Mother Know? Iconic. She's great. She's chewing the scenery. She's winking. She's over the top. Louisa Jacobson, a.k.a. Meryl Streep's third daughter. I'm sorry. You're in a show about privilege. You should be going by Gummer or at the very least. If I was her, this is how I would make my career camp. I would go by Streep. Oh, I like it. I like it. But it's like she can't even take a joke or she can't even like have fun. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> and I don't hate it. Again, I this is one of these shows where it's like we're saying critical things. You and I will be glued to the screen for every episode of this show and in way, invested way too much. I also think it's strange that the Nouveau Riche family is has made their wealth through railroads when we yes. also were told that the Vanderbilts live in this world. Yeah, you got to commit. And I have to say this, you know, when you really, if you can eat pizza, you know, when you really want a pizza and you finally get Every a pizza, day. it's still pizza, but it's not what one would wish. Like the expectation always outpaces reality. No, because most of the time pizza exceeds my dreams and hopes, but every now and then one picks up a pizza. This also happened to me last week. I was going to say, and it's just not, it's not, it's not what you would hope. It's not what you would wish for. You would not want someone else to have this experience of a pizza. You still had a hot pizza for dinner. That's how I feel about Gilded Age. I'm still getting a hot pizza as promised. Is it what I wanted? No. Will, will I keep ordering pizza? Yes succession activates something in my brain that is some combination of like excited, scared, thrilled. I know it's not real, but I feel this incredibly deep investment in those people. And I also think that part of what's happening there, as you're saying, is like the unexpected humor and the fact that Succession is self-aware that these people live in a bubble that's surreal and that should not exist. I think Gilded Age is actually built on a premise that that society functioned and was not a bad thing. I, I do think that's implicit there. I also think if you're Julian Fellows, and I think people have said this about Don't Look Up, which I've not seen, so I'm not going to comment on that, but I've read reviews of it where people are kind of like, they're presenting it as a comedy, but they're not in on the mm-hmm. joke or like they don't know how to have fun with it. And I think with Julian Fellows, it's like in a similar way. I don't think he's trying to say something in the way that movie is allegedly trying to say something about the environment, but I do think he is like overly sincere in a way that's not playing where Downton Abbey was also very sincere at times. And I did cry watching that show. Like I will not talk about the death of Sybil who to me, Mm. Allison's going to roll her eyes at this is the best character (laughs) who was on Downton Abbey next to Maggie Smith. Loved her coming, showing up in pants was an iconic moment. Like I cried when she died that touched me. But at the same time, I was sort of like, they're just here to have fun. And the Mr. Pamuk of it all, like when Mary's like sneaking around mm-hmm. to like hook up with Mr. Pamuk very early on in the show, I was like, this is hot. This is fun. This is entertaining. No one in doubt, no one in Gilded Age. I'm like, do any of you get drunk? Do any of you have sex, have fun, like <laughs> gossip? Like, where is the fun? Where is the levity? Where is like the everyday, 
you know, just like hanging out with your friends, like even in scenes where that's depicted, I'm like, it feels kind of stage actory or like sort of forced. I don't know. Again, I'm not like a real critic. These are just my two cents. I'm watching all kinds of other nonsense. Like my taste is all over the place. I can't be trusted, but these are just my hot takes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I have all these criticisms of this and yet Yellow Jackets was probably my favorite show of the year so far. So if you think it's a complaint about things not being highbrow enough, it's definitely not that. Okay. So I put out a question on Instagram and I was like, can I, like, I need some cozy British mysteries, like suggestions. And somebody was like Yellow Jackets and I shared it. And then literally five to 10 of you <laughs> listeners who I don't know, but I appreciate these hot takes were like, Mary, we don't know you, but we feel like we do just checking in that you can't handle this show. <laughs> and I respect that. <laughs> I mean, I think you could. I think it may not be what you're looking for. I would not describe it as cozy. I think there are quite a few scenes that are extremely intense. And I think if you're if you're looking for Babysitter's Club, you don't go for like a gang of serial killers, right? I think that's sort of apt in thinking about why you may not, not want to dive into Yellow Jackets. Sometimes you just tell me what stuff is about and I feel like that's what this is going to have to be <laughs> where you just kind of tell yeah. me because I mean, I think really I'm just drawn by Christina Ricci and that's like basically the basis of my appeal, which I think is fine, but I, I don't think so. I don't think so. Speaking of me telling you what something is about, are you ready? Let's do it. Let's lean into this. <laughs> it's a uh, it's a uh, time for our summary. So both of us have a version of the book that includes a peek into the story of Cecile, but we're going to focus right now on just Meet Marie Grace, which is what makes up the big part of the first book. So I'm going to read that description for us. Marie Grace Gardner has just arrived in New Orleans and she hopes she never has to move again. The lively city is full of music and masquerade balls. When she meets Mademoiselle Ocean, a talented opera singer, Marie Grace longs to take lessons. She loves to sing and would like to get to know Cecile Ray, the confident girl who is Mademoiselle's student. But Marie Grace is shy, and starting school reminds her how hard it is to make friends. Can an unexpected adventure help her feel as if she belongs? Includes an illustrated looking back about the history of New Orleans. Oh, it does. Oh, my God. Allison, I say this every episode, and I, I really mean it this time. I don't know where to begin with this book. I was texting you at approximately <laughs> page three of my reading process and was like, I don't know how to feel, don't know how to act. And that was before I truly had gotten into this book. So I don't know if this is meant to be a metaphor for the nation state, but this book opens with young Marie Grace being woken up by music, right? There's this loud music and she learns that there is a big celebratory event happening. And the event that is happening is a celebration of the Battle of New Orleans, which is actually a battle that had almost no point or purpose right. in regard to the fighting of the War of 1812, to which I just said, we just got out of there. We just yeah. got out of there with Caroline. I thought we were out. This book is set between January 18th and February 15th, 1853. Why does that matter? Just for those of you who maybe are going to want to think about how you take in this content, it's June of 1853 that is considered one of the worst parts of the yellow fever epidemic. We're going there, but we're not there yet. We're going to celebrate Mardi Gras along the way, but we open with this celebration of the Battle of New Orleans. Why? I mean, we'll love to know because I really was delighted on for us on our behalf that we escaped the <laughs> War of 1812 without having to engage Andrew Jackson in a very direct way. No. And that's difficult um, to know that people are celebrating that battle, which, as you say, was fought after the war had concluded, but the news had not reached New Orleans at that time. And, you know, just in case anyone's wondering, like that battle is still reenacted. So I recently came mm -hmm. across some photos of a monument being dedicated at the site and of reenactors. So, I mean, that's still out there. But also knowing that cholera is coming is is tough. I mean, Allison, like, would you have wanted to attend this parade in 1853? Yeah, definitely. But um. <laughs> So I'll just say full disclosure, New Orleans is probably my favorite city in the United States. So 
I'm excited that we're there. I wish we were there in better circumstances than 1853. Yeah. I mean, every time somebody mentions like water or liquids in this book, I'm like, where's the water coming from? Because, yeah, I mean, listen, we've already had at this point, there's already been a cholera epidemic in New Orleans back in the 1830s and even before. Um, around the time of this book, there's also one in Chicago. There's, you know, the Mississippi River is like obviously spreading cholera and everything else all around with also the rise of immigration. So like, thank you, Kirsten and your family. As you know, <laughs> they paid the price themselves. R.I.P. Marta, never forget. But, you know, it, we're situated in this book in a way where you're like, okay, so her dad is a physician, point one. And the premise of the book is that they've just moved here from Milton, Massachusetts. But then in a roundabout way, you learn that actually she was born in New Orleans, and then correct me if I'm wrong, Allison, she leaves, moves to Pennsylvania. Then they're moving around miscellaneous cities, end up in Milton, Massachusetts, then return to New Orleans. Is that right? Yeah. And I want to comment on that. I say that as if this isn't literally our podcast. Um, <laughs> no, part of what I think is going on with that is two things. It creates complete unnecessary chaos within the first 10 pages because we learn that Marie Grace has a father, uncle, and there is a woman who is paid to do caretaking work in the family full time. Out of all of these people, she cares the most for her dog. And part of why she vibes with the dog the absolute most, Argos, aka I'm calling him Argonaut because I want to. Okay. And in homage to Ben Affleck. Um, why part not? of what we learn is that she has this kind of, I think, dual identity as a northerner and as a southerner. And part of how we learn about New Orleans is through her point of view and her experiencing things. And I think there's something kind of like strangely cheap about doing it that way. Mm -hmm. We can pull out a few places where she sort of recalls that her father was anti-slavery and it's directly cited as the fact that they are from Massachusetts. The fact that they have lived in Massachusetts is part of why he thinks this way. And it explains her confusion over things like some of the racial codes in New Orleans. At the same time, Uncle Luke is completely on the vibe. He's completely into being in New Orleans. He is fully immersed in the culture. Needing her to kind of be this bridge between the two sections, I think, is not necessary. I think it's not necessary. And I also think that there's a lot of ideas from the perspective of 20 whatever year it was when this came out, 2011, yeah. Okay. It's just before Caroline. So whatever year this was dreamed up in, and we know that they have a long development process. If you're projecting back onto New Orleans, I think there's something that actually connects us to the Caroline books in a sense. When we read those books, we talked about ships as being a place in this period that were almost like a third space. So like gender could be different. You know, people, life on a ship could be different in, in terms of society than it would maybe on land. I think they're projecting a similar identity onto the city of New Orleans in 1853 mm. in this book. And it's very hard to distinguish the very real ways that because of the cultural fusions, because of the nature of the history of the city that we can get into, that it was different than places like Pennsylvania or Massachusetts or other cities in the South even. But I also think some things were not that different. And so when she comes into town and says like, oh, my dad said everyone deserves to be treated equally. That's a thing that she says, she recalls in this book multiple times. I'm sorry, even abolitionists in 1853 did not believe that. Yes, that, that language is in our founding document. There is a huge gulf between language and lived reality. And yes, there were a significant amount of, of percentage of the population that was a free black population, which we get into very early in this book, subtle like yeah. a freight train exposition. <laughs> but I don't think it was that the sense of racism that's just assumed in our, in society in this period is not here. It's almost like here's this magical person who comes in from the north and she also encounters a city in a place where people just don't really push back on this kind of magical feeling that she has about race relations. 
No, one of the first things that we hear from her about being in New Orleans is she's very excited by the parade and she feels like this must be a very special place. As the plot kind of develops, there's a conversation that she has with her father where she says, Papa, New Orleans is part of America, isn't it? On page 28. Part of this is coming from her question over why people speak English or why people speak French. Mm -hmm. And there's a very real moment where she has to attend school and she literally doesn't speak the predominant language, which is French. So she's put in this very kind of situation where she feels strange and out of place. And this is part of what's going to end up fueling her questions about whether it's she, but she says America, she's really referring to the United States. Um, a scene that I think really encapsulates the way that race gets t- treated in this book is on page 63. Uh, one of the central characters who we meet early on through the uncle who's very much an uncle guard type. Um, I don't think he's ever going to marry Mademoiselle, but we can talk about that. He's not going to marry. Well, not going to happen. So he takes her out because there's all this excitement over the parade and we learn that her father has to work and she goes to a music studio. We can tell that this is going to be a really important part of her character and it's where we get introduced to Cecile. In the course of different events that happen in that dance studio, on page 63, we learn that there is going to be a ball and this will prove to be a pretty central event in the book. As Marie Grace, Cecile, and this other student, Lavinia, are having conversations, one of them is given a treat. And in response to the teacher, someone says, don't I get a special treat too? On the same exact page, Marie Grace learns that balls are segregated, that there is a ball for young white people and a ball for people who are considered not white. And I'm saying that in a specific way. And when that's questioned, their response is, because it's always been that way. And who do they choose to have that come out of the mouth of in that scene? I just think it's interesting how they chose to frame that. It's Cecile who shrugs and says, it's always been that way. Because they're having this discussion about things being um, unfair in terms of like a kind of petty thing from the teacher. And then within the same snapshot is this discussion of whether the children's opera ball, whether it's fair that it's segregated. And the fact that Cecile shrugs. I think, yeah, that's a really telling scene and one that I keep reflecting on after having read this book. But I think there's a theme that runs throughout this book that connects to that scene, but starting all the way back at the beginning of the book of purposeful blindness or Mm -hmm. amnesia. And you get this very early on when she comes downstairs, she's just moved to New Orleans and she sees a man talking to her dad. And she's like, maybe a new customer for my dad's practice, which we've already, we will get into this. We get the sense that the dad is not a good businessman. He's a physician. He's running his own practice. We have thoughts about that. We're going to get into it. So she's like, kind of like, ooh, like, yes, like already a customer. (laughs) Great. And then her dog, Argo or Argonaut, Affleck, uh, like recognizes this man. And then he's like, oh my God. And then she's like, hello, sir. And he's like, basically like, hi, don't you recognize your uncle Luke? P.S. I gave you this dog. And in an instant, she goes from having no knowledge of this guy. And I understand she was young when she lived in New Orleans before, but it wasn't that many years previous because immediately she's flooded with very detailed memories of this man. Mm -hmm. And she's like, wow, he was actually present for all of my most treasured childhood memories. Also, (laughs) he was my mother's brother. And, oh, geez, readers, um, just FYI, I'm just remembering she died from cholera, and then quickly my brother died from cholera, and then we had to move because my dad didn't want to be here anymore, and he, like, we've had to keep moving because he can't, like, build up a sustainable practice in any one of these places. But it goes from, like, I who is this man, excuse me, to, oh, my God, of course, Uncle Luke. But the whole book is sort of that trend of, like, total, like... You know, amnesia, I can't remember anything to the, oh, but it, oh, it's always been this way, just in case this is one a, forgets. It's a textbook SOS, Samantha orphan situation. <laughs> Samantha will feel as though she doesn't remember anything. And then if you think back to Samantha saves the day, there is one single thing that unlocks, right? All these kind of visceral memories 
they have a conversation that I do want to dive into a little bit. Uncle Luke is kind of presenting a version of Marie Grace to her as he sees her, right? Like that he recalls her being really brave and being really young and having this picnic very close to alligators. And she says, me, brave? And he recalls her saying, alligators don't scare me. I don't know that that's a flex. I don't think that that's... Have you been close to an alligator? I mean, I think once in the Everglades, but I don't... Maybe that was a crocodile. I, I'm, I don't know, like, the difference. <laughs> so I don't want to flex myself on something on which I'm not sure. Have well, you? Well, to quote the famous joke several times, um, there's one that will see you later, and there's one that will catch you after a while. That's a famous oh, gator wow. dial joke. But, um, yeah, so I was on an airboat, and one of them basically popped up within less than a foot of my feet, And the person operating the airboat very quickly told what I gathered to be a parable, which is that in another instance, it was that instance, if you scream when they are that close, they could rip his hand off. And I was like, oh, he's giving us instruction not to scream. Um, So I kind of gathered there. I do think there's an element here of like New Orleans tourism board saying, we need to get an alligator moment. We need to get yep. a riverboat moment. We need to let people know that like, it's still fun. You should still visit. Great. There are plenty of things, things to happening. do. They talk a bit about the food. Um, to quote our protagonist here, it must be the best city in the world. Surely it has the best parades. We get like a slightly, not a slightly, we get a different vision of what's going on in this city in something that the people who wrote this book chose to really drill down on, which is something called the Continental Sunday. Had you ever heard of that before? No. I was going to say, it was very strange to me that they leaned so hard into a concept I've never heard of in my life. No. So before we talk about the ball, which is where this book goes, right? It leads up to her making relationships with people, including Cecile, and them going to these balls in New Orleans. We have this moment where on page 88 of this book, the historians who wrote the back part talk about how Sundays were shocking. And Sundays were shocking because after people attended, free people attended religious services, they would go shopping. And there's so much discussion about kind of the square, right? And public Mm. spheres in New Orleans. And it's like, you would not believe the shopping that's going on. So I had this kind of vague recall that part of what made New Orleans distinctive relative to other Southern cities that were still doing a lot of heavy human trafficking in the time is that slave trading was not happening in one square or one place. It was happening all over. And I'll link to this website, but there are scholars who've done research looking at all these different kinds of records and particularly a census from 1854. And they find that that is actually one of the biggest transactions that's happening all over the city. So you're kind of given this weird picture of like, you would not believe that this woman bought a bonnet on a Sunday at 2 p.m. What's actually happening Mm. is like a gross sale of human beings all over the city. Yeah, and in a sense, it kind of feels like what you're describing is that the historians advising on this book took on the blinders of Uncle Luke um, in the story when oh boy. he takes her out to... So after we get this sort of amnesia and the sense memory trauma response, which unfortunately is now emblematic of multiple American Girl dolls that we've read, he's taking her in the street to go meet his perhaps girlfriend, probably not opera singer friend, and they they come <laughs> across wishes. he wishes they come oh. into the street and they see basically um a, a free black person being accused of being a runaway enslaved person and being accused being you know accosted by slave catchers and his response is not to involve himself or really to explain to Maria Grace what's happening he takes her down a like a very narrow alleyway like immediately like like navigates her around it and away from it. And it kind of feels like what you're saying is, or what you're describing is historians kind of doing the same thing. Like they don't actually want to confront readers of this book of any age with the truth of what was happening on a continental Sunday or really any other day. So instead it's like, look, you could buy a hat. 
Hmm. There's a lot about class in this book. So Lavinia is kind of the enemy. And we learn that she's an enemy because she says something that we can read as very fraught in a different way. She very quickly meets Marie Grace, whose dad's business is just not thriving, right? Like he needs to read Rich Dad, Poor Dad or something. And Lavinia says that she only mixes with the best people. And we can understand as women of 2022 that that is going to have class and racial connotations. The way that Marie Grace is encouraged to interpret that is that she is rich. We get this super helpful hot tip from Uncle Luke who says, plenty of people will be friendly to you if you are friendly to them. This is like going (laughs) into a hostage situation with a fortune cookie. Right. He then further explains, not all people of color are slaves. They have some, and then he talks about wealthier, free Black people. They have some of the rights that white people have. He gets a follow-up question. If that boy is free, why did those men stop him? Everyone has a shoulder problem in this book. Uncle Luke shrugged. That's his response. Yeah. Yeah. And it's there's... It's a great question, not answering it. <laughs> great question, not going to get into it. <laughs> well, it's also like, excuse me, what is your personal involvement, Uncle Luke, in, you know, commerce that involves or relies upon enslaved labor? Because we learn that he's the captain of a steamboat. Mm. And in that period, obviously, a bunch of like trades or trade is bringing cotton and brother goods up the Mississippi to be traded. And that relies on enslaved labor. I'm sure that he's relying on it in some ways. And we get no statement from him of, you know, oh, I'm I'm personally against this. I won't have anything to do with it. I'm sure his life relies upon it. And it's a system, obviously, that relies upon it. And as you're saying, Lavinia's family's wealth largely Mm -hmm. probably draws on that. So she's living in this world that has much greater visual signifiers, perhaps in New England, although let's not forget, you know, slavery continued in New England through the 1840s. So, I mean, I just, there's a lot of this that I'm like, I just don't buy it. And it just feels like it's Disney version of what this would have been like. I feel like the housekeeper is more central than we'll ever know because there is another scene where we get to learn a bit more about the father's medical practice, which I feel like is setting setting a kind of foreshadowing for the fact that he's going to be pretty essential, right? If an epidemic is coming, he's going to be essential. And they're also letting us know that he treats Black patients, right? There are two young boys, one of whom is bleeding from an injury, The housekeeper is completely put off by this entire exchange, and the extent of her help is saying, I'd better get the mop. And my note on this is like, there is actual trauma happening in this scene, and I think they're not really being treated, even in the narration, as children. The housekeeper is like, I'll get the mop. Yeah. Like, she does not, like... And I think it's interesting because in a sense, though, of historical accuracy, Marie Grace is getting two very different messages about how to treat free Black people who are just a bit younger than she is. She's getting one message from her father, who is very humane and wants to treat these people and even gives them something on their way out so they'll be able to get food Versus the housekeeper who just wants to literally clean it up. She doesn't want any association with any of this. Yeah. And it almost is treated as if it's generational. Like the dad also Mm. values education when the housekeeper is like, she could learn just as much hanging around this house with me. Like she doesn't need to go to school. (laughs) She doesn't need your book learning. She certainly could. It's like, actually she could. Um, But in the dad, it's like he values equality and he treats these young black children and wants to give them candy and is sad that he doesn't have any yet because he's still setting up his office and what have you. But certainly as a white physician trying to set up a new practice, you would think we would see a moment of hesitation in him as someone who is mm. a pragmatist who has failed in so many other cities, wants to succeed here and would know that there was a connotation to being seen, at least by white clients, as someone who would treat black patients in this period. And so it's interesting that even that hierarchy is not acknowledged. And maybe to his credit, he wanted to treat them and he was open to that. But at least it would be interesting if we could see that sort of conflict within him. Like, I want to support my daughter and our household. 
And, you know, this also is in keeping with my beliefs about race. And, you know, there's just, there was a lot here that's just sort of brushed over. And I also yeah. don't think his medical, I want to see his credentials. We actually have a scene where we set up his office with him and we see the oh. leeches put in water, which at that True. period you would, if you were a doctor, you might actually advertise in newspapers to say, hey, I have leeches, come see about me. Like this is a hot medicine that you can put out there. There, this is a really weird period in medicine for this man to be a physician, especially in Louisiana, because there were initially after the revolution in the 1810s and 20s licensure laws by state. So you had to be have a license to practice within that state. Then people were like, this is undemocratic. How dare you? Because there's these other forms of medicine you could practice, like being um, a homeopathic doctor, maybe you're a mesmerist, like hopefully not. But so other <laughs> forms of knowledge challenging so-called orthodox medicine. And they're like, we should be able to practice too. So then a lot of states revoke their licensure requirement. Louisiana is the only state in the South that, that has a requirement for a licensure. So this man moving from here, there, and everywhere to mm. Louisiana, he actually needed to have a license. And they don't have a board of health until 1855. So we're actually going to approach that. And it's largely because of what's going to happen in 1853. But it's like, what are your credentials, sir? Like, did you graduate from a medical school? Like, have you healed anyone? Like, what is your what is your background? It's it's all a little bit overwrought, right? It's easy when you're in your 30s to get that out of a children's book, but like he couldn't save half of his own family, right? So there there is kind of that in yeah. the mix here. The housekeeper is the most stable woman in her life. Would you not imagine that at some point in the long journey between Massachusetts and Louisiana, the father would turn to his daughter and say, you know, you have an uncle and he's a really good role model. And again, SOS, Samantha Orphan situation, we know you like music. That's something that you will have in common with him. I will have him help you understand. She seemed to not even really have gotten the memo that people would be speaking French. Yeah. I mean, to me, so the the racial blindness of this book is is extremely glaring. But I also think the culture of mourning and grief and the blindness mm -hmm. around what that would have been like in their daily life as a family, I also think is a huge blindness in this book. Because, you know, to give Dr. Dad credit for a second, like we don't know actually until this year when Jon Snow does his um, dot map in London with the cholera outbreak there what causes cholera? There's all these debates. Sure. So like maybe he he's not happy to that. He couldn't save his wife and son. But imagine the 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 feelings that come with that. Like you're a doctor, you can't save your wife and son. You're with your daughter who's still with you. So much of grief is rehearsed, especially in that period. You would be mm -hmm. talking about them all the time. And there's also no religion in this book, which I think is interesting because we're heading to Mardi Gras. We're approaching Lent, and we're in a city that has a fusion of cultures, but certainly Catholicism is at the fore in terms of like this really important cultural celebration then and now. We have no discussion of her either like praying when she's in New Orleans, like, hey, like, you know, hope this works out, or rehearsal of like, Oh, wow. This is the uncle that dad's talked about a million times. Like when he used to tell me stories about what mom was like, so I wouldn't forget about her. It's like, hmm. where is the culture of grief or mourning or remembrance? Like, I think that's why they make her a part-time New Englander. I think yeah. they are treating that as if it is the cultural default, right? I think that's why there's these references to Massachusetts she sees what is a pretty well-known prominent church in New Orleans and assumes it's a castle, which is very telling. Oof. But then she almost immediately goes to Catholic school. So there is this kind of sense of like, it's both something she is familiar with enough or it is culturally mapped onto her enough that she's going to go to Catholic school, but she doesn't recognize that as a church. Like, I think there is some effort here, just being honest, to make the South strange, right? Like that everything yeah. here is strange. Like she finds it totally unfamiliar. 
And the fact that when she and her new friend, Cecile, are learning together at this integrated music studio, right, that they can attend balls, we are again having it set up that she is surprised that things are not integrated. As if that would be an expectation she would have, I think, as a northerner. That's how I read it. Yeah, which is itself weird. And not accurate. No, not accurate at all. I mean, you can speak to this, I'm sure, from you know, like the Massachusetts experience, but I don't think that there would be any expectation in Massachusetts at that period that there would be mixed social occasions. Well, trying to, so like the place she's from is not real. Like she's not right. from a real place. They didn't choose to situate. I think that's because dad's credentials are <laughs> a question mark. Under question. Yes. Um, I think a doctor from Tulane is going to knock on the door at some point and have some questions. That's as all I'm going to say. Um, as he should. Absolutely. But we're kind of given this thing that like, I think the most interesting question that comes out of this entire book is her asking whether New Orleans is part of the United States. I think that is yeah. actually like a kind of fascinating question. And in part, a reflection of the way that some people, I think, in New Orleans also talk about that place, that it is a part of the country that is incredibly distinctive. There are elements of culture that are French, that are Spanish, that are English, that are African. There's all these different things coming together. But to kind of go to that, to would it shock you to believe that people shopped on Sundays um, was just not really where I thought. And like, that we was haven't said this. Head. Yeah. No, we need to just spell it out. The reason we were talking about swabs at the beginning, Marie Grace and Cecile end up at their respective children's balls, right? And so Marie Grace is at a ball that is designed for white children. These two both have the same costumes from their teachers and the same masks, and they decide to switch places. Because also, weirdly, the children's ball for non-white children and white children is taking place in the same building, we're told. And yeah. so Marie Grace gets basically an invite that's arranged via Uncle Luke, who's basically using teasing the opera teacher and using his connection to her, her social connections mm. to get an invite for Marie Grace. Not sure where that's going to end. Very worried about that. So she's like, oh, my God, I get this invite tone deaf. And then she's Cecile is like, well, it's always been done this way. Like, I won't be going to your ball. But then the teacher's like, but hey, girls, remember, it's the same building. And then unbeknownst <laughs> to us at the time, Cecile grabs the same fairy costume and mask as Marie Grace. So they arrange the swap. And we learn that Lavinia has decided that she's going to be a mermaid. That costume is not executed very well. No, it is not. A scene that reads very funny and very different today, page 72. Lavinia wasn't wearing a mask. And I was like, oh, oh boy. Well, that's the world we live in. <laughs> so Lavinia is anti-mask. Um, there is also a moment where Lavinia, again, there's a lot put on class here. We don't really know a lot about Lavinia, but we know that she is wealthier than Marie Grace and that she wants to tell her what to do and how to behave. And she's the one who tells her that she ought not to dance. And she kind of gets her comeuppance when Marie Grace and Cecile dance at each other's balls anyway. I think something that's potentially, and I'm not trying to pick on this, but something just to think about, I think something potentially sort of dangerous as a takeaway is a notion that any kind of passing was something that people could engage in playfully. Like part of the joke with Freaky Friday is that there aren't really serious consequences, right? Two blonde girls or two Lindsay Lohan switching places, nothing really happens, right? And even in intakes two, there's this huge class difference. But what's the worst that's going to happen? Right. It's not a good situation. We're kind of lulled into this false sense of security here, thinking that Cecile could slip into Marie Grace's world with no consequences mm. when that's not true. Yeah. And I think it's it's inter it was an interesting choice for the author to start this book with a trading places kind of narrative because, you know, even writers like 
Jack London and others who had other trading places stories made them all class-based, as you're saying. It Takes yeah. Two is a very similar one. To make it race-based, I mean, the stakes of this are are really impossible to overstate, like truly life and death. And for the author to not even acknowledge that, I mean, it almost seemed like if there was any confusion or anxiety, it was like, well, adults are going to be upset about us going to a party that we weren't explicitly invited to. Right, right. And, and but actually, like, this this is like a central issue in New Orleans at the time. And I was reading about different histories and like one of the things that became a sort of fear that racists perpetuated was you don't know with whom you're dancing under the mask and you don't know the true racial identity of a Mm -hmm. woman that you might be interacting with. And this is actually a fear that racists harped on and overinflated this idea that a woman might be pretending to be of a race that she is not. Yeah. I mean, that's... Yes. And I, when I was reading this book, I was actually thinking back to, did you ever have to read any of Kate Chopin's short stories in college? Oh, no, no. <laughs> so <laughs> she wrote The Awakening, the novel The Awakening. Oh, okay. So we're, spoiler alert, the protagonist walks into the ocean at the end rather than be a wife and mother, um, you know. Mademoiselle Ocean or? <laughs> yes. And um you know, it's an uplifting read, but her short stories are similarly uplifting and usually have female protagonists who choose to do something opposite what is accepted. But Desiree's Baby is a truly insane short story that's basically this baby is found on the street. She's adopted and raised by well-to-do parents. She marries a well-to-do man. They have a baby. And basically the baby is born and people are like, that's not white. That baby isn't white. You lied to me about having a white family history. And so she's writing frantically to any relative she can find to prove Mm. her racial purity. And it turns out, so then he casts her away with the baby and he starts burning all of her stuff in the house. And as he's burning the stuff, he goes, he finds a letter from his mother, his own mother to his father, admitting that in fact, they have people of color in their Mm. family tree. So it was actually his DNA, if you will, if you believe in this one drop theory of the time, this was like in the 1880s, I think. And, you know, that's how it ends with him being like, no, like it was me all along. But it's like this is the seriousness with which white supremacy upheld a one drop view of race, you know, in this time and in decades earlier in the world of this book. So the idea that this would not be policed, especially in a children's ball where, you know, (laughs) children are perceived as more vulnerable, like where Lavinia is like the cop in the ball and like adults are seemingly not paying attention to this or wanting to uphold white supremacy, especially knowing that the non-white ball is taking place in the same building. I found that very hard to believe. Yeah. And there is actually a difference. Like I think part of why we're saying like there is a ball for white children and then there are other events is there are a lot of different Creole traditions here, right? Like there are people who have like many different strands of ancestry. And so race is not a binary in New Orleans, right? There is a famous book by Rebecca Scott called Degrees of Freedom. And it talks about the different ways that colorism is encoded into law and into practice. I read an article from the 1990s that was about just masked balls generally in this period, in this place. And one of the authors of this piece like really, really underscores that there was a lot of fear around events where people wore these face masks because um, this is what they write. The anonymity provided by a mask might encourage slaves and free people to commit crimes. So like, Hmm. obviously this is a book for 10 year olds and there is a kind of like series of, you know, like wacky events happening between friends to talk about like the strangeness of Sunday shopping or like, wow, this per gosh, this parade is kind of loud early in the morning. I think there's just such a huge gulf between like what makes new Orleans a really rich site to better understand the United States and the kind of cop out of saying like, Oh gosh, is this really even America? It's like, 
this is actually arguably the most America. <laughs> it's yeah. a dense, diverse, multicultural place with great inequality, but also these situations where like we don't know Cecile's backstory, but it's a place where it's possible for wealthy black people to purchase enslaved people. It's a complicated racial system. There's complicated colorism here. Um, so it's kind of a an interesting ending to this one that I wasn't really expecting. I'm looking forward to getting Cecile's point of view. One of our favorite reviewers talked about Marie Grace and said she kind of reminded her of just vanilla. Like there is something about her that's like a little bit sweet, sort of like a dessert you might have mid-afternoon, um, but you're not really sure what like what else is there yet. Yeah. And I think I'm interested to see kind of how Marie Grace evolves over time in her new home or like once in future home. Something that I <laughs> like a connection that you make reading the book that you wonder if like nine-year-olds make for whom this book was originally designed, as you rightly remind us. But, you know, we open with this scene or there's a scene early on where Luke, Uncle Luke steers her away from an, like what he thinks is like an unseemly um, mm. dispute between a free person of color and a slave catcher. But later when Marie Grace takes herself out to the market because her um, housekeeper has arthritis and doesn't want to go, she offers to go and she feels very empowered by this, that she's out by herself and she's like, wow, I'm looking all around. This is great. And she runs into Cecile, who's really shocked that Marie Grace is out by herself unaccompanied by a maid or an adult. She has her maid there. She has an Irish maid. Um, but it's interesting because in that moment I was thinking, how different would this be if Cecile was out by herself? Mm. The the threat to Cecile being out by herself on the street where she could be accosted by a slave catcher or some kind of patrol is really different even than Marie Grace, which I agree. It's like maybe not safe for Marie Grace to be out by herself, but even that is really different, but it's like that goes unacknowledged, even though they introduced yeah. it early in the book. Why do you think we're forced to share six books across these two? Like, I would happily read six books about Marie Grace or, frankly, just six books about Cecile. Why do you think they chose to do this for a 2011 release? Like, what do you think was going on? there. I mean, I you invoked Katrina early in this episode and I did think about that. You know, is this some kind of way of trying to force or imagine some kind of racial harmony after mm -hmm. a national disaster that really evoked or made clear, you know, a lack of equity at least around, you know, issues of housing and institutional support, government support? especially after recovery from truly a national disaster. You know, is that why we're getting this kind of forced, you know, arc? I don't know. What do you think? Just while you were saying that, I was reflecting. We went to the same college, obviously. And do you remember the influx of people from Tulane? We started college right around the same time as Katrina. Mm -hmm. And I remember that. And of course, like a visceral memory for that time was when they did the fundraisers on live television. And Kanye West said, George Bush doesn't care about Black people. I recently rewatched that entire clip, not in connection to this, but just on a TikTok and that was like really an extraordinary moment, I think, in television history, like thinking about the ways that so many people feel really left behind during this pandemic or frankly left to die or to, you know, just be part of this mass disabling event to think of a celebrity on a major network during like yeah. an event that was taking up like I think even 15 years ago, we had a different relationship to television. Yeah. Like that was what was on the major networks that night. And for him to go off in that way and to say, like, we didn't take care of these people. Right. Like that, I think, was like a big turning point of like people's rage actually being vocalized in a way that was not expected on national television. Like nobody thought he was going to do that. No, I mean, certainly he's always been an unpredictable type person, but I think that that was a high watermark moment for him in terms of how he used his platform. Because as you're saying, like we're living in a world now of like streaming and all these other things that have changed the calculus of TV, but 
to have something that unexpected happen on live television was was rare even in that moment. And I remember watching that and just being like really taken aback by it, not really in like agreeing with him, but being super taken aback by it and seeing the dissonance between like Oprah at one point went down there and was like doing her show from New Orleans and seeing what was on her show versus what was on the news was really different about what was being covered. Yeah, I mean, to me, it resonates, frankly, now, because I think a lot of places where we work and where we live have chosen to lean into, for reasons of capitalism and compliance and all these other things, like gaslighting about COVID, like magical thinking. If you speak about this as if it's over, Hmm. you can then act like it's over and it's not over. But people make you feel insane if you act like it's still happening and I kind of feel like there's that kind of energy in what you're describing too. Yeah, I mean that was I mean that was a pretty important event and I think part of why it really stood out to me not just because of what's happening with Kanye now and like he has a very different presence I Ooh. think in some ways in the year past 2005 but to actually just kind of call it what it was on live television and I also think part of what we're seeing with COVID is we're being trained to think that natural disasters and human-made disasters are normal. Mm-hmm. And we're being trained to normalize it and to not complain when we have climate catastrophes. I, you know, glutton for punishment, I guess. I'm in probably like 30 different small like hometown and city groups about history. And I've been watching as people are lodging what I think are incredibly valid complaints about improper care of sidewalks, um, major access issues with where they live. We just had a blizzard a few days ago. And on the one hand, media outlets are wanting us to be completely enraptured and obsessed with this blizzard narrative and yet not complain at all when disabled people can't leave their front doors because there's been no maintenance. Um, Every street near me has been clear since the night it happened and almost no sidewalks. And that's typical in the United States. States, I think for the most part, but you're not really supposed to say anything. Like, I feel like the housekeeper in this book is basically running the white house. She's like, is this child bleeding? I will grab a mop. Like no humanity, no concern. Um, So I'm looking forward to reading these books. I'm interested and excited. The illustrator and the author are both from New England And I am really curious as to the backstory of how, like, to me, New Orleans, I think of as an extraordinary place. I would never try to write a book set in New Orleans because I respect, (laughs) and I'm not saying that this person even had a choice because she was a Molly and Samantha mystery writer before she got this gig. And maybe her name was pulled out of the hat and like Kathleen got Caroline and she got Marie Grace. I don't know. Like the question of like, is New Orleans the United States? I think is actually a shrewd one. And I don't know that I could take it on. I think it's a shrewd one. I think there's a lot of magical thinking going on with this book about race and memory so far. So I'll be tracking how that goes. But I think also like to your connecting point about Katrina and the conversation we were having, you know, Louisiana was a place that in New Orleans specifically that prided itself on offering people services in exchange for taxes before 1853. Mm. So they were providing some folks with water, for example, but some people didn't want water from the Mississippi River. Can't imagine why not. So they were collecting water (laughs) through cisterns. But of course, as the city keeps growing exponentially, fewer and fewer people have access to water. We are approaching a major cholera epidemic. We've just making this explicit. We've referenced it. We're already two family members down from cholera. We're moving into an epidemic that will kill one in five members of New Orleans. So I'm looking at like, what's what's the city's response going to be like? And is that going to be some kind of weird comment on Katrina? Like, you know, where are we going with this? Like, I'm genuinely very excited. I'm interested. I, I'm scared. I'm all the things that I guess I should be going into book two. 
Yeah, um, I'm trying to dig up my photos from the Mardi Gras Museum, which is the most that I have experienced Mardi Gras myself. We had a colleague named Casey whose family was from New Orleans, and we would get a king cake to share Ooh, every year, Yes, right around this time of year that we're recording, and that was always a delight. I never but, got the baby. Uh, me the neither, baby but Jesus. that's what I mean. That's okay. You don't you don't have to to get the baby, okay. but I'm I'm curious to like kind of learn more about where these two are headed and I may be going on a quest. I've been all over every marketplace to get a Marie Grace doll and I think I may have secured one within a 4-hour round trip drive and uh yeah, what? You know? <laughs> are you serious? I don't want to speak about what price it is because I'm getting a really good deal and I'm just hoping that I can like seal it with this particular person. Um, These characters were only around for literally shorter than four years. Like they were in and they were back in the vault. And so this is a difficult thing to do. Um, It's just something that I'm working on. Wow. This particular Marie Grace has blue feet because of an incident with a marker. I'm willing to look past that. Wow. So I'm. Are you sure it's not like cholera related? Like I'm scared. So the seller has not returned my latest message. Okay. I didn't want to sound too desperate and I don't want to tip off how good of a price this is, but I am willing to do the drive because I'm pretty interested now. And she comes with a bunch of accessories. And like, if I'm buying a used doll, I'm okay with her like having lived. Okay. I like that for you. <laughs> I like that for you. Wow. Well, I can't wait to hear how this adventure goes. Um, please stay safe and I will, you know, can't wait to hear where this is going. <laughs> and in the meantime, we are looking forward to some other events that are happening in February 2022, including our reading of a certain famous figure skaters book for our Patreon. Oh my God. If you would like to join us there. We are days away people from the beginning of the winter Olympics buckle up, get it together. I am exploring how I can make bingo sheets for different Olympic competitions. (laughs) And I'm excited to figure out how to do that. We will be reading ambassador Kwan's 1997 or four. Yeah. Seven memoir. What is it called? Heart of gold. Heart of gold. Of course it is. Oh my God. Wow. She truly (laughs) does have a heart of gold. Love her. Can't wait to get into that with you, Allison. And and if you join our Patreon, you get access to our Discord community, which is genuinely one of the few kind places left on the internet. And we do usually do watch-alongs. I would like to lead one of the figure skating competition, mm. saying that right now. Sure. I had sure. a fantasy league going over the Summer Olympics, but it was kind of touch and go for software reasons. And the CEO would email <laughs> me back personally when I would report a problem. So... You know, we'll see if we explore that again. But just all to say, like, I am excited. (laughs) I'm ready. Um, You know, if people want to talk to me about Nancy Kerrigan's recent appearance on the Antiques Roadshow, like, would love to do that. Allison, if people want to get at you, (laughs) how would they reach you? Yeah, especially if you've watched Yellow Jackets, I would love to hear from you. I'm at Allison Horrocks at Twitter and Instagram. Um, pretty easy to find there. Can also reach the show at a girl's pod on Twitter. We have uh, an active Facebook, we have an Instagram, and we have a website. That includes a telephone number. You can give us a ring if that's something that you would like to do, and we promise to never answer. Really it wrong. is voicemail only. Mary, what about you? Listen, if you want to speak to me about the Winter Olympics, prepare yourself before you DM me, but please DM me at Mimi Mahoney on Instagram or on Twitter at Mary Mahoney123. I do so love hearing from all of you and so appreciate that. Um, And please feel free to reach out to the show. We're very much looking forward to where the Marie Grace and Cecile books go next and to all the things happening on Patreon. So hopefully we'll see you there. And thanks to everyone who's already supporting us in that community. Thank you. See you next time. Bye.